Many of us consider our pets to be members of our families, and our vets are their primary caregivers. We make such an emotional investment in our animals, why would we treat our relationship with our vets purely as a transaction? In 2018, Dr Nadine Hamilton created the campaign Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. It's also important we encourage veterinarians to flourish and love themselves. So if our vets are looking after our beloved pets, who's looking after them? Hello and welcome to another episode of Flynn's Talk. I'm Jack Levitt, one half of the usual co-hosting uh, duo, but Jeremy Gellman's having a week off, so Cam Raw has uh, jumped into the co-hosting seat once again. You're, you're becoming the professional substitute, mate. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's hard to fill Jez's shoes, but um, I'll, I'll do my best and uh, enjoying the experience. Yeah, appreciate it, mate. And uh, you're obviously a, a massive part of what we're doing um, with our little movement here with Flynn's Walk, so um, appreciate your your buy-in to all that we do and um, and, and jumping in and helping with the podcast has certainly been, um, been really fun. So I appreciate that. Uh, Excited today um, to head towards our special guest, uh, who's Dr. Nadine Hamilton is going to join us. Um, She, of course, is the CEO of Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. Um, We connected with her a couple of years ago and uh, just after we did our first walk, um, it it was somewhat of uh, fortuitous timing, but um, she's been great to connect with and and certainly is supportive of what we're doing and, and us back to her. So, um, that's going to be a really good discussion. I'm looking forward to her taking us a little bit deeper into what this all means um, for the vet industry and also, uh, I suppose, some of the work she's doing to actually support uh, veterinarians and those those that work alongside them. Yeah, it's really uh, valuable um, to have somebody with, I guess, a bit of a, an outsider's view on the on the vet profession and um, all the mental health challenges that are, are facing all all members of the vet industry. And she certainly brings a lot to the table. That's it. And I, of course, she's Dr. Nadine, but uh, she's not a veterinarian. But uh, growing up, uh, she actually wanted to be one. Um, but like myself, well, I didn't grow up wanting to be one. But like me, she's uh, she's quite squeamish. She's uh, self-confessed. Um, so she realized she wasn't quite cut out to be, to be a vet. Um, and, and of course she was touched by suicide in her own, in her own family. So, uh, she ended up taking a career path through psychology and, and, and arriving where she is now, um, with the charity, which is, uh, been somewhat of a fast but pretty cool journey. Yeah, she's done a lot in a very short period of time, really, from, um, you know, obviously her her six years of, of research. But from then, she's worked on, um, you know, a funded campaign with Royal Cannon on um, mental health in the vet profession, springboarding into a charity, um, huge social media presence, and raising a lot of awareness in the, the broader community about these issues she's doing amazing work and i think what she's managing to set up is is a bit of a groundswell and a movement um you know not too dissimilar to what we're doing we've got our own focuses in terms of a community approach but nadine is really focused on making sure that there's a support stream that supports the industry out the other side so while we can advocate for positive psychology and self-care and um, you know, avoiding burnout, she's sort of walking the talk in that sense and making sure that uh, there are those networks and safety nets set up to help the field. Yeah, it's really great. I'm looking forward to the discussion and uh, let's get into it. 
Well, our incredibly special guest for this episode is Dr. Nadine Hamilton, who's based up on the uh, near the sunny Gold Coast, which is well, we're rivaling that a bit down here today in Melbourne, Cam, which is yeah. nice. But yeah, it is the depths of winter, but um, it's always warm to see Nadine's face, which we are on Zoom. Welcome uh, to Flynn's Talk. Thank you very much. Nice to be here and um, yeah, have a chat and be part of your Flynn's Talk podcast series as well. So looking forward to having a chat. You've obviously had quite a long journey throughout your work in this area um, with veterinary mental health in particular. I'd love for you to grab your paintbrush and canvas, um, if you will, and and maybe like paint us a little bit of a picture for those listening about the characteristics that make up veterinarians. You obviously spoke with so many and, and heard so many stories from so many wonderful people. Um, I'd love for you to to frame that in your own way? I think, I mean, a lot of it is fairly generic um, and I say this with the the utmost respect. Um, typically very high achieving, high performance um, or high performing and perfectionistic tendencies and I think a lot of that is sort of governed by, you know, typically and I know it's starting to change especially here in Queensland with university entrance requirements getting in there but you know typically it had to be you know only the best of the best would get in Um, you know so you had to be very high achieving to be able to have the grades to enable you to get accepted into vet school and then it was like you know the best of the best succeed and I would have you know a lot of vets whether they're clients or whether they're friends whether they're colleagues that say to me that it's very hard we're not taught how to fail we don't know what it means to fail. We don't know what it's like because it's sort of drummed in. You know, you have to do this. You're going to be, you know, when you're working, you're going to be doing 10 to 12 hours a day every day. You need to know what it's like to do this. So, you know, there's these unrealistic expectations can be set right from the start. Um, but, I mean, I, I do say, you know, vets are my favourite breed of people. <laughs> so, And I will extend that to nurses. I don't want to leave our nurses out. Um, but obviously, you I mean, my research and, and the, the bulk of my work is with vets. So obviously it is, um, you know, the, the majority there with vets. Um, but I would also add to that, you know, my experience, the passion that is there. You know, I think every vet that I have met, um, you know, or worked with have been so passionate about, this profession about the the care and the quality of life for animals, you know, whether they're pets, whether they're livestock, you know, whether they're wildlife, just that passion, that determination. Um, But I would also add, I guess, the the genuineness. And I think that that's why I just have this affinity with, um, you know, with, with vets that I just think just seem to me just to be genuine caring very very special people yes yeah, so i guess is the personal and the, then the professional side uh, you know with again high performing perfectionistic tendencies for for the majority but also you know that other side that um you know a lot of us see and a lot of people don't don't necessarily see yeah yeah so at the moment we're still um we've just had another sort of disappointing announcement in regards to um covid lockdown and and so wellness and focusing on our own personal well-being has been super important whether we're working from home and and for the vets who are still in clinics who are really working hard to deliver that same level of service with pretty pretty difficult um, restrictions placed on them what's your current read on the the vet industry as we um, work through the difficulties that we're 
they're faced with in terms of wellness? Yeah, I think it's been a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, like, obviously, when this you know, pandemic first hit, I think it threw a lot of people into turmoil um, about, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do it? But everyone just got with it. You know, we're sort of on the back of bushfires. We're on the back of floods. You know, obviously, here in Australia, it's like, we haven't had time to catch our breath and it's like, oh, my goodness, now there's something else and something else. And I think for a lot of people it's just like, okay, the adrenaline's pumping, it's business as usual. I guess from from a vet professional point of view, working in an emergency situation, you know, is something that is, um, I'm not necessarily going to say the norm for everybody, but it's something that you're used to dealing with these high-pressure demanding situations. So it's like, right, what do we have to do? We'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. Um, I guess throughout that sort of the the main or that initial period, um, there was a lot of talk about there were a lot of vets that enjoyed not having the client contact, the face-to-face contact. Yeah, that's always been a big thing, hasn't it, that vets have um, often wished that they could just be a dog flap at the front door <laughs> be instead. Be careful what you wish for. People just sending their <laughs> yeah. pets on through with it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, you know, I, I know that there was that uncertainty about how do we do everything, but you know, if you sort of think, you know, like the hygiene practices are, are pretty much, you know, happening. Obviously, there's always room for improvement, um, you know, but the way that everything's done. So I think it was more around how are we going to do these consultations, the the split shifts that a lot of the clinics put in place. I think that mm. what I was starting to see maybe up until about a month ago was that was starting to take its toll because um, a lot of them were working longer hours even though they were doing shorter days and then not seeing their other teamwork, um, their co-workers. So I think it was getting to that point and that was sort of, I guess, a lot of the conversations that I was hearing that the staff are getting exhausted, um, you know, because I think early on, you know, it was like this is going to be great, we're going to be so efficient with our time because we're not going to have the clients standing here and chattering, we can control it, but I think, you know, that wasn't allowing for the time that we're answering more phone calls than normal because everyone's ringing when they get there. We're going to out to the car to collect the pet, come back, then take it back out. So, you know, there was a lot more interaction per client than what there probably would ordinarily be. I mean, normally you go into the clinic, you announce you're here, the vet, you know, brings you in, you come out, you're done, you pay and off you go. Whereas now it's a phone call, okay, I'll let them know you're here. Then someone comes out to collect they're doing the procedure and then the vet's ringing you to tell you what's going on and then, you know, you're, the nurse is bringing them out and you're having to make the payment. So it's a long, nearly I suppose like a double up really of some of the services. I guess there's still, I guess, that change. I think some of the things, the hardest things were um, the euthanasias um, where the, the clients weren't permitted to be in the clinic when they were happening, you know, and this is, um, that's, yeah. that's obviously really yeah. sad. So I know that there were some that would, you know, do the procedure in the car or, you know, where the clinic had a nice garden, a private garden area out the back, they would, you know, try and compromise a little bit. I think that was a struggle um, for for a lot of the staff as well and, and then dealing with the patients or the clients' grief around that. Um, but now, yeah, I think now that a lot of the clinics are starting to go back in and allowing, you know, one person in the consult room, you're allowed in the waiting room. It's sort of like, ah, oh, okay. So it's sort of like there's a little bit back of, a little bit more of normality. Um, I think it depends where you are too, because obviously in New Zealand, you know, we're in complete lockdown. And so my understanding and same with um, some of the states in, U- in the US were that they could only um, open for emergencies. You know, so there were a lot of 
clinics that a lot of the staff that weren't allowed to work, you know, and when you're so used to being on the go and like, oh my gosh, well, what's going to happen to all these animals and, and all of that, that sort of level of uncertainty, as well as, you know, all the other pressures that have come with being in lockdown. Somewhat anecdotally, just from, from my personal viewpoint, um, throughout that first uh, season of our Flynn's Talk episodes, throughout the majority of that time, I was actually dealing with a, a, a ultimately very sick cat, uh, Maisie, my cat. And just to sort of share a little bit of my own insights, I guess I was I was doing this podcast series and talking with lots of different people about lots of different facets of the industry. And I saw those waves of having to ring from the car and then hand the cat over or they would take the cat from the car. Then it evolved all the way through to just in the last few days when I had the cat at the vet, I was actually in the clinic, more or less having the consult in the reception um, at a, at a social, socially safe distance. So there were still only a couple of people allowed in and, and you're kind of looking and thinking, I had a bit of guilt myself about the fact that the appointments were taking a little bit of time for me personally because my cat was getting a fair amount of treatment um, with some fluids and things like that being done. I was thinking to myself, oh, I'm taking up one of the only two spots that is, can be, it's only two people can be allowed in here. So I was feeling that that rebound as a client and as a, as a pet dad, um, you know, that I, oh, I'm taking up one of only two spots here. Maybe maybe I should go outside and let someone else come in. But everyone, of course, wants to be in there and be as close as to where it's happening as you can and, and the vet to be able to open the door of the normal consult room where you'd go in and pop their head out and say, we'll just be a couple more minutes. We're just trying to get the tablet in or whatever it might be. So I sort of saw the full spectrum, which was important and quite grounding for myself throughout that process. And I suppose where I was kind of heading with that, Nadine, for you, have you seen an uptake in the amount of people that coming to you for help, advice, guidance. I know that you do so much work normally anyway, but your your email inbox to start with must be booming. Yeah. <laughs> it was it's it's been crazy and I think some of that is testament to how long it can take me to get back to some of your emails with that. Um has just been nonstop, I think. I mean well all year it has been, but definitely I started seeing um having clients wanting to do more webinars for their staff and like oh my gosh how can we help our staff deal with these changes that are going on um so there was a lot like a lot of that like some of them were at 5 a.m in the morning with um clients in the UK and then some would be at night time seven o'clock at night um here and you know so it was just a lot going on there but also I guess at that one-to-one level where I work with clients privately I definitely saw an increase then and I don't know that it was COVID related, but it might have been, could I say, COVID inspired um, or COVID exacerbated by that? Just some of those stressors that sort of just triggered people to want to do something about it and reach out and get that support. Um, and that seems to have just been constant. Um, I was just joking with someone earlier, you know, I, I'd spent all Saturday clearing out like all three of my business inboxes and I'm like, this is great. I finally replied to every email and by Monday it was like this again. I'm like, oh, my God, it's just, um, which is a great problem to have but it's, um, yeah, certainly I guess indicative of sort of what's going on out there and what what supports out there and how people can support their staff and their teams and, and themselves as well. So, But it's it's great, you know, on the whole it is so good to see the profession um, at large, you know, reaching out and acknowledging, you know, that support of that, you know, if it's an organisation that they want to put that support in there for their staff, you know, and taking the 
the mental health and the well-being so seriously, which is really encouraging. Well done to you as well. You've you've certainly dug deep throughout this time. Many have and many continue to do that. So well done. Um, you are only one person. People people need to acknowledge that and, and you're doing great work. There's a lot of factors and, and things that contribute to the stress and burnout that veterinarians feel. And um, I know that Cam's experienced some of these things himself and, and Cam, you, you obviously can talk for yourself on, on those subjects, but I carry sort of three or five dot points in my head, I suppose, when we walk and talk with people and when I go to chat to different people about, you get asked the question, well, why why do vets uh, and a lot of vets take their own life and, and other people within the veterinary field as well, which we must acknowledge. There's the thing about vet care is expensive. We understand, you know, we some of us understand it well, some of us don't understand it, and we're going to dig into that, the financial side and why vet care is expensive. Um in another episode. Client pressure, I suppose people understand that one um, in some way. Um, we've got to try and convert the people who aren't maybe being as kind in clinics to veterinarians and support staff as they could be um, to be some of the nice ones. But I suppose as my nan and her grandma always told her as well, um, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So be one of the nice ones. The big one I feel, Nadine, I was talking to Cam about this before we started, uh, is the compassion fatigue one. I feel like people understand what that means, but actually don't. I'd love for you to drill into that and explain what it is as a concept and why we've got that label, but also uh, what it means in a professional sense. And that is, um, you know, when we look at those, the five contributing factors, um, you know, that, that came out of my own research you know compassion fatigue was one of them um you know you said it too jack you know the the dealing with difficult clients is another and that can be multifaceted there can be many reasons it could be non-compliant with treatment it could be rude snide remarks it could be because of financial issues um financial issues is definitely up there that can be twofold you know the financial issues from running a practice essentially it is still a business um you know and most vet practices you know the profit margin is less than 10 percent so despite what people think about oh you know this is a um you know license to print money it, it really isn't it's still a business running you know at very low profit margins typically um Euthanasia, you know, is definitely up there. That was, you know, thought to be the initial reason, the prime reason, but I found out in my research it wasn't the, the single most contributing factor. And then unrealistic expectations, you know, that clients put yeah. on them but also that, you know, the, the vets put on themselves. Um, but that compassion fatigue often gets mixed up with imposter syndrome and often gets mm. mixed up, I guess, with burnout, <clears throat> Um, so compassion fatigue, sort of as it says, it's that fatigue that comes from being so compassionate. So, you know, typically vets are hugely, hugely compassionate. Um, you know, people that work in the helping or the healing professions are typically very compassionate. You know, you care about other people. That's why you're doing what you do. Major empaths, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and then you think about it like with vets. I say vets get a double whammy because, and obviously this extends to our nurses and our, our techs as well, of course, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. just sum it up to say, to say vets. But um, typically, you know, from a, a human perspective, so for me as a psychologist, when I'm working with a client, I'm one-to-one. -one. It's a human-to-human -human, um, area. So, yes, certainly I can be compassionate and I can be empathic um, in what I'm dealing with, and it's just one-to-one. -one. But with the vets, you know, and the, the wider vet worker team, it's not only that human aspect, so the carer or the owner of that animal, but it's also the animal itself. 
you know, and typically when you think about, um, you know, vets in particular, they're getting into the industry, that quality of life for animals is one of the core values that's there, you know, that care for the animal, that well-being, that quality of life. So when you see that that animal doesn't have that um, and then so you're trying to be compassionate and thinking about, oh, my gosh, is this animal suffering? Is this animal in pain? I need to do everything I can. But then you're also Mm -hmm. trying to be compassionate towards the owner who might be sitting there freaking out, wanting to do the best they can, but they might be afraid of am I doing the right thing? Can I afford this treatment or... Is it going to make it worse? Am I going to get the outcomes that I want? So there's sort of like that two levels um, of that compassion. But when you're being compassionate all the time, it starts to become very fatiguing and it can come on really quickly um, depending on your level of coping, your level of resilience, you know, how you deal with with that level of compassion. Um, Whereas burnout tends to come on or take a little bit longer, you know, that comes on over a period of time. Um, So it's sort of like, um, you know, the body whispers before it shouts. We get that period of brownout before that period of burnout. There is a little bit of contention around empathy in vets. So, you know, and I hear vets saying all the time, we're so empathic, Um, you know, and I thought empathy and compassion sort of went hand in hand. I thought, you know, they're the same thing. To be empathic, you're being compassionate and vice versa. But they're actually two different things. Um, So I can be compassionate without being empathic. So being empathic or showing empathy is about putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. Oh my goodness, what would I be feeling if I were going through that? You know, so hearing obviously, Jack, your story with Maisie, um, you know, and then I can sit there and be empathic and go, oh my gosh, I know what that was like when we went through it and we've done this. Oh my gosh. And so I can get myself so worked up over it and so emotional over it because I'm putting myself into how must you be feeling? Whereas I could be compassionate, you know, you might say, oh my gosh, you know, my, my car's just broken down and I can't get it fixed. I might go, gosh, yeah, that's, that's really tough. But I might not be empathic about it because I might not be able to feel passionate about a car or something like that. But I can still show that compassion and care. And so when you're doing that, you know, day in, day out, and being compassionate, it is very fatiguing. Um, and again, that contention around the empathy, there was a research um, article, a journal article that, that actually followed a vet through X amount of consults over a period of time and they recorded all of the um, consultations. Like obviously with consent, they did everything the right way, but um, it actually found that there was something like, don't quote me on this, 60 or 70% of the time where the client made a comment that it wasn't taken on board. And so they were sort of saying, you know, the the vet missed the chance to be empathic on basically the bulk of these opportunities, which might have been a situation where the clients come in and said, I want to do the best thing that I can, you know, for Jenna, you know, use my dog as an example. I want to do the best thing I can for Jenna. I just don't know if I can afford it. Um, And so they've gone, yep, sure. Well, we can do this test and with this test and this test. I'm not saying that they're not thinking about anything and they're not doing it, but it was the opportunity to be empathic, to think, gosh, how would I feel if I were in that situation trying to do the best for my animal and I couldn't afford it? Um, So that was it. Whereas being compassionate would be going, oh, yes, I understand it's, it's really a hard decision to make or, you know, it could be something like that. So it's just, yeah, when you're, when you're giving everything, uh, you know, and often you don't have those boundaries. It's like, oh, my gosh, I want to fix this for this person. How can I fix it and make everything okay? And, 
Um, you know, and that's where obviously, oh my gosh, you know, well, this is my favorite client. So maybe I'll provide my services and, you know, for, for a discounted fee, or I won't charge you for this, or I won't charge you for that. Um, you know, because you're taking on that responsibility for that person, which isn't your place um, to do that. Sounds like we can um, definitely do some work on perhaps channeling our, our empathy and directing it in the in the right way at the right time rather than um, than sort of draining ourselves at um, at every possible opportunity to to really use it to work best for our clients and for our our patients I think it it comes down and I've been talking this word a lot lately but boundaries you know having those Mm. boundaries like certainly Mm. being compassionate you know I I don't know that you wouldn't know how not to be compassionate I think it's you know part of your innate um, (laughs) makeup I guess um you know and I, I certainly wouldn't want to do that but again I would say have boundaries with it you know, and again, you know, as a someone in the helping profession myself, where I'm dealing with lots of trauma and those sorts of things, we have to have those boundaries because I'm not responsible for my clients' issues. I'm I'm there to help and support and provide a service, but I'm not there to, you know, fix that issue or take those on board. Mm. Um, otherwise, I would be a mess all the time because I'm the big sook. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I want to fix everything, but the reality is, we have to have those boundaries to say, okay, I can only do so much here. I can't necessarily fix your issues for you. I could try and fix your animal, but yeah. I can't fix your issues for you. So, you know, it's being very clear on that and it's something that I think freaks a lot of vet professionals out when we talk about boundaries because it's like, oh, my gosh, but how, what do you mean I have to turn that client away that's just walked in and yeah. hasn't had an appointment as demanding yeah. to see me? You know, or what What do you mean I can't discount my fees or, you know, those sorts of things because, again, it's – it could be a whole host of other reasons that it leads into, but it's about looking mm. after yourself first and foremost, having those boundaries to start protecting yourself and your own well-being. Yeah, that's that's really nicely framed. And I think that um, it certainly is easier said than done. So for those listening, like with we're saying these things that I suppose they are hopefully will enable someone who's feeling like they need to put a boundary in place or look after themselves a bit more to do that. Um a mechanic can pull the roller door down and go home and, and no one dies. Like as in that car can wait till tomorrow. Um, I work in sport and we often say it's just it's just bloody sport. Like we can I have an eject switch there, which sometimes my partner has to push for me or I'll have to push myself and go, I'm out today, I'm done. I'm done with that subject, I'm done with that email thread, I'm done with that that project. But when that's an animal's life, when that's someone's family member, as it as is the case, you know, certainly from me and my own animals um, mm. throughout life, just hitting that eject button or pressing pause is an incredibly difficult thing to have to do. But and that obviously is part of a bigger subject and a, and probably a whole other podcast series is looking at you know organisational change, yeah, and and, and allowing and enabling that? people to. <laughs> Um, to cope by putting structures in place, but um, as you said, it's easier said than done. Said than done. It, it can be done, but I guess it's, but it can be done. Yeah, exactly it right. It can absolutely be done, but it's hard because it's not our normal way of acting. It's like sort of saying, you know, if you're used to getting up and having a coffee first thing in the morning, and you know, most of us, that's like a part of our routine. Um, you know, it's like no, you can't have coffee in the morning. You have to have it and wake up at one a.m and have it then it's like what you know we're trying to do something completely different yeah exactly it's sort of like but we don't do that we do this you know so trying to change that that habit or trying to change things and feel comfortable 
with that, um, you know, and it's, again, we're, we're dealing with a very sensitive um, area and profession and what we're dealing with, I don't mean sensitive professionals, but this, the industry we are dealing, you know, as you said, Jack, we're dealing with life and death here in a lot of cases, yeah. you know, and there are a lot of factors that come into that as well. You know, we don't just have the, the human animal part, we have the human, you know, client part as well, <laughs> you know, to come into that. So makes it very multifaceted. Yeah. Something you touched on just before as well was uh, imposter syndrome, and that's definitely something that I think I've succumbed to at certain stages. Um, I guess it's always felt as though in in high school, you know, university was something we're always working to, and then we'd be there. And then you get into uni, and then you want to get into vet school, and then you'll be there. And then you get through first year, then you'll be in second year, then you'll be all right. And then it's third year, fourth year, and then eventually you're done and you're a vet. But for so many of us, speaking to my colleagues, we we still don't feel like we're there. And even speaking to other colleagues who are 20, 30, 40 years in the industry, they still don't feel like they're there. Um, what... What is this imposter syndrome? How how do we make sense of it and how do we get around it? So imposter syndrome, again, is essentially the the feeling where you feel like you're a phony or you're a fraud um, or an imposter um, within, you know, that, that profession that you're in. So, you know, for a, a vet that's coming in, they would feel like I, I shouldn't be here. I haven't got the qualifications. I haven't got the experience. I haven't got the knowledge. I don't know enough to be here. So I feel like I'm a fraud. I feel like I'm an imposter. A bit like how we would feel, you know, if we're not, say, dentists, how would we feel if someone said, you have to come in here and pretend you're the dentist for the day um, and act as if you're a dentist? We'd be like, oh, my gosh, I've got no idea what I'm doing. Or, you know, like that first few days on a new job, you're like, what am I doing? You know, even though you know what you're doing, but you feel like you have no mm. idea. Or, you know, when you go and sit down to take an exam, you're like, I know nothing. <laughs> it's that sort of feeling where you do, you feel like an absolute fraud or an absolute phony um, getting in there. And, um, you know, it's quite amazing to think that 70% of people will experience it at some point in their lifetime. So if you think you've got a, you know, a clinic environment or like you think of, you know, if it's uni friends or whoever, you know, there's 10 of you there, seven people there will either be experiencing it or have experienced or will experience it. Um, you know, so that's, that's a lot of people, you know, that, that go through that. And if you flip that, it's sort of like saying, well, only 30% of people aren't going to experience it that's how mm. common it is um but again it's some people get around that again it's very high in professions such as the vet profession with high achieving perfectionistic um tendency people that are working there because again you know like as you said cam it's um you're getting used to you know oh we'll, we'll just get through this and now we'll get through this reminds me as you were saying that about you know for those who have had children it's like oh I just want to get to 12 weeks and then I know I'll be okay oh no 16 weeks and I'll feel like no 20 weeks and no I'll wait till you know and then even you know like nearly 22 years later oh well okay I'll wait you know it, it doesn't stop you know it's just like there's always something that's there there is um you know so again like they can people could work longer hours like to either justify that they are capable and that they can do it it's like they're trying to prove it to themselves or prove it to other people because if I look really busy I'm going to look really competent and you're not going to question me and find out that you know I'm a fraud and I shouldn't be here 
assuming, of course, you are qualified to be there, of course. But, um, you know, this is that mindset going through and like, and if I, I don't ask any questions because people will then, you know, I'll, I'll be exposed and people will then know that I really don't know what I'm doing, um, despite the fact that you do, um, you know, or you're obviously qualified enough to be there, even if you're thrown into a situation you haven't had to deal with before. So, um, yeah, it's essentially like feeling like an imposter, um, you know, in, in your own profession or in your own circumstances. And, you know, initially it, the term was coined by two psychologists to describe women who felt that despite evidence to the contrary, you know, with the, the experience or the qualifications, that they still didn't feel good enough. You know, they still didn't feel that they belonged in this particular, you know, workplace or environment or profession. Um, but now they know that it can affect men and women equally and it can affect any profession. But typically it's those, you know, where you have gone through some form of qualification and then you're sort of on your own. I mean, you haven't got the luxury when you come out of university, you haven't got the luxury of having your lecturers there to say, oh, look, you stuffed up with that. It's okay. Let's just, we'll fix it up and go here. You know, if you're in a simulated environment, it's like, okay, if that happens, then this could be, you know, a pretty unpleasant outcome. Um, you don't have that constant support there, you know, from somebody saying, it's okay, do this, do that. You're potentially on your own and making those decisions and life-threatening decisions in some cases, you know, they're, they're really big decisions that just not feeling like you're capable you know, of being there, again, feeling like that phony or that imposter. I'm not, not a psychologist nor a vet, but um, and, and gradually learning things about all of this uh, as, we, as we walk and talk and do, do our thing. To me, it sounds like, as Cam, Cam kind of asked the question, you know, how do you negate this? How do you get around it? It sounds like it's, we, we need to get better at practicing self-worth, encouraging confidence. Um, now, confident people are different to having confidence in what you do because um, confident people give everyone the shits. Like yeah. I just go, oh, yeah, here's so-and-so that's, yeah. you know, you played you played footy with them in high school and they were also good at hockey athletics and were top of the class in science. Okay, confident person. So if he takes Japanese on, he'll probably kill that as well or she. So I think that there's a case there and Nadine, you'll know this is your sweet spot, but um, that positive psychology uh, space, of course, which is what you're have spent so much time doing and do do now. But that self worth, encouraging yourself from within, which is hard to do with shy, introverted, humble people, yep. veterinarians. Yep. <laughs> and how can how can we encourage people to do these things? And and where does even just qualifying your own self-worth and, and positioning start? I guess first first and foremost, it's an acknowledgement, you know, and accepting mm. that you know what, I feel like I'm struggling with this or I'm not dealing with that or I need to do this or I need to do that, um, mm -hmm. sort of acknowledging that because, you know, and I think you're right, like that self-confidence and like a, a confident person but having self-confidence can be two different things. Like I could feel really, really confident talking to a room of 400 people about positive psychology but if you asked me to sit there and talk to a room of 400 people about how to train your dog, I might not be as confident in that. So I could still come across as a confident person, but I'm not necessarily confident in areas that I don't know about. Or you ask me to assist you in surgery, say, Cam, I'd be on the floor passed yeah. out. 
Me too. I could still be really confident. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a fellow queasy yep. person. Blood, blood injury phobia is the name for it. Um, <laughs> so it's that sort of thing that we could be really confident. Again, I think it's we can be confident in, in our own areas, the things that we're passionate about that we feel knowledgeable about or comfortable in. But then there's certain other th- areas or we just have our limits. It's like I'm comfortable talking about this. Yeah. But if you ask me about this, yeah. I'm not too sure, so don't go there. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of the things, and that's where I think positive psychology can, can bring a lot to it. And I love positive psychology because it focuses on the good things and acknowledges that the not so good things are still going to be there. They're still happening, but what about the good things, you know, and the, the good stuff's still there, but it tends to get buried beneath all of that psychological smog of everything else. So we just got to unpeel back all the layers and dig down and until it comes out, um, you know, but there's things like some quick and easy things like gratitude and I know we all hear about gratitude all the time mm-hmm. writing a gratitude list of all the things you're grateful for so I know people are going oh I've got to go to stupid work tomorrow hate going in there and oh god I hope that whinging client doesn't come in and I hope I don't have to do one of those <laughs> disgusting procedures you know what is it I think everyone talks about expressing anal glands I think that that might be one That's, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> something mm-hmm. like that you know yeah. like Ugh. so we're doom and gloom it's like, hang on a minute, let's let's switch that around and be grateful for the fact we have a job. You know, we're getting paid for our skills. We have the knowledge and the experience, you know, perhaps the qualifications to go out there and do it. We can make a difference, you know, to the that pet's life, that we have a workplace to go to, um, you know, that we have clients, even though we might not like some of them, that we still have a business and those clients are effectively, you know, paying our wages or helping our businesses to, um, you know, stay open and to continue to trade. So it's sort of turning it around a little bit and and looking at, okay, but what am I grateful for? I'm not grateful for this, but I'm grateful for these other aspects because there's always something to be grateful for, even if it's just the fact that we have fresh water to drink out of our drinking taps because there's people and countries out there that don't have that luxury. Um, So, again, it's just sort of switching things around, whether it's, you know, things that we're grateful for about ourselves, our workplace, our friends, our family, our partners, whatever it may be, you know, just looking at things that we're grateful for. Um, But also another one that's one of my favourites is three good things. You know, so the idea with that is at the end of every day, write a list about three good things about you without the yes but. So it might be, oh, yep, one good thing about me is I'm really good at talking um, unless it's talking about how to express anal glands, then uh, don't even get me started. You know, it's not about that. It's about I'm good at talking or I'm I'm good at performing surgery. I'm good at trying to comfort a cat who's distressed that's just come in. I'm good at um, washing and ironing. I'm good at gardening. I'm good at walking, whatever it is. You know, so you start writing down this list, you know, of, 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 of things every day for about a week. Unless you're a narcissist, mm-hmm. you'll probably start to run out after a while, you know, but just three good things every day. Because, um, again, it really can help to boost your self-worth, your self-esteem, your self-confidence because you start focusing on the good things there that are happening instead of getting caught up in all the not so good. And again, we're acknowledging they're still there, but we're just not buying into it and getting caught up in it. We want to put that energy and focus into the good stuff. Um, Because imagine how different your day would be, you know, if typically you're caught up and you're ruminating and all the negativity and all the bad stuff, you're like, you know, now I've got to do this, now I've got to do that, and this has happened and that's happened. Imagine if you put that energy and focus into the good stuff, how much different things could be. 
Um, you know, so it's, it's things like that. If you get thank you cards or letters from your clients, you know, holding on to them. And when you're feeling like you're a little bit low, start reading them, you know, and start doing that or get other people to write something nice. You know, what would all your friends and family say about you? If they had a special yeah. celebration for you, you know, what, what would you hope that they would say? about you you know so it's really just trying to focus on those good things using your character strengths and the you know there's surveys you can do to find out what your character strengths are to again just find out all the the well-being and all the good stuff that's going on i think the the important thing there is that there's stuff you can do fairly quickly fairly easily there's apps smiling mind is a really good app um there's lots of things you can do and that's heading more into sort of the um, meditation, self-care uh, space, but it's all linked. Um, but also the fact that if things are quick and easy, they're just much simpler to approach because if something's more time-consuming and going to add more stress because you've got to get that extra task done, and we all love writing down the things we've got to do and crossing them off, but it's no good if every time you cross something off, you add another three things you've got to do. But certainly approaching with that mindset of, um, oh, this is a quick little thing that I can do, a quick win, I suppose, is a good way to, to look at it. The, the gratitude one is huge and something I really had to tell myself to focus on when I went into working from home, then a stand down from my full-time job. And you are, some days you're scratching around in every loose drawer to find every last little thing of positivity that you can do to fill up your jar and other days it's overflowing um, and you've got to find that balance, I've found. But, but writing it in a, a gratitude journal you know or having a gratitude jar you know writing them down so that you can keep going over and reviewing it but it, you're documenting it yeah absolutely but it can be as simple as things that you're grateful for around the house I'm grateful that I've got um, forks that I can eat my food with so I don't have to use my fingers you know I'm grateful for the fact that the rubbish truck comes and collects my rubbish <laughs> simple, yeah. from the end of my driveway you know I'm grateful I have a lawnmower so I can mow my lawns you know again it's just switching things around and just focusing it a little bit differently or you know if you do get bored write a gratitude letter to someone else you know write a gratitude letter to someone who has been instrumental um, in your life but you've never really thanked them you know and organize yeah. to either meet with them ideally meet with them maybe zoom or whatever and read them yeah. the letter um, or it might be posting it or emailing it to them you know again it's a it's an instant feel-good moment and it, it can be very some people feel very overwhelmed um, with doing that because they're like, oh, my gosh, what happens if they hate it? Um, so it's like that fear of rejection comes in, but it's like, yeah, but they're probably going to love it. Um, you know, imagine how good it feels when someone says, oh, my gosh, do you have any idea what a difference you've made? Um, you know, it's very humbling. It's really nice. Think about if a client sends you a thank you card or, you know, just a genuine thank you or thank you. you you've really, even though this has happened, you really, you've made my day or, you know, it feels great and it feels great to be on the receiving end of that um as well so well actually um that is exactly where i was about to go with our with our discussion is around that gratitude well i, I want to sort of dig into what it is that we can do as a community i'm in the pet owner animal lover uh, part of the venn diagram <laughs> if you like where i feel like there's so much i can be doing to to thank my vet and and the clinic of, of people that have helped me with my pet, you know, and, and throughout our time. But that gratitude piece, um, something that really sat with me was I actually was chatting with a vet the other uh, a couple of weeks back, and she mentioned to me that um, she gets a lot of chocolates and flowers uh, and thank you cards, and the gratitude shown when she's had to help a family say goodbye to an animal, but she doesn't get a box of chocolates 
or a bottle of wine or flowers when she's fixed a dog that had a broken leg in a car accident, for example. She considers that her miracle work. The She actually framed the euthanasia and end-of-life care as her privilege and part of what she does is that is actually a privilege for her. Um, and she actually helped me through that that moment in time um, with my own with my own cat. That's one of many things we can do, isn't it? Is offering the gratitude at different times and at the right times to our vets, and as well as the, there's other things I'm sure that you have ideas around what we could do too. Because I think it's like if someone said to you, you know, oh great, Jack, you've done great today. Jack, thank you so much. Jack, thank you. Jack, thank you. After every single thing you've done. It's going to lose its meaning, you know, and then I'm not going to, then it might be, Cam, I just wanted to say you've done an awesome job today. Thank you so much. And then it might be a week later I might go, oh, my gosh, yeah. you never cease to amaze me doing that interval sort of um, aspect yeah. is yeah. probably going to have a lot more meaning rather than going, you know, years without saying it and then you're going, yeah. do they appreciate me or not? You know, it costs nothing to say thank you. It costs nothing to be kind. Um, you know, we don't always have to show kindness with cards and chocolates and flowers. And I mean, absolutely, they're they're lovely and that is a gesture. But I'd say don't underestimate the importance of just saying a genuine thank you and what a difference that that can make. Um, but again, you know, making sure we're doing it, you know, like as you said, Jack, at whatever time, it shouldn't have to be just an emotional time, you know, where, mm. where we've said goodbye to a pet, excuse me, that that's the only time that we're acknowledging the worth of those staff, you know, because that could be how it's being perceived. It's like, thank you so much, because we have to remember that every day that, you know, we're bringing our pet home is a day we're not having to say goodbye to them. You know, that's an extra day with them. It's like, great, you have just fixed my dog's life. So you might have potentially added another three or five years onto that. So that's great, because I don't have to think about making that decision now, you know, like, thinking, I guess, about the big picture, what does this mean? you know, that my vet has just done a dental um, on my animal or whatever it may be, you know, that we may just think, oh, it's only a dental, it's only a vaccination. But what does that mean? You know, like, how can we be grateful for the fact that we have these procedures, we have people that can do these procedures, um, you know, that we've got these places, particularly at the moment, that we can still take our pets to be cared for. Um, you know, we can still have that. And there's still people there working there to do it. Um, you know, so I think it's important, yeah, to to make it holistic and not just, you know, exclude, it's only exclusive, I'll only say thank you at this time. You know, I think it is important. And, again, just that genuine thank you, um, you know, can can definitely go a long way. Mm, it can go a really long way. It's, um, you know, those are the things that I've hung on to are the, the cards um, in particular. Um, chocolates don't go that far with me. I'm much more of an ice cream guy. But, uh, <laughs> Mental <laughs> note to myself, ice cream. Hint, 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 hint. Those cards are the things that I've held on to and continue to look at for years afterwards. And, um, you know, if I have had a rough day, those are the things that I'll go back to. Um, and it really does, you know, it might just be a, a very brief thing for the client, but but for us, it it can make a massive difference so it's always always appreciated and there are I think yeah it is just fine and, and finding different ways um you know I did something for uh, one of my really good friends um they lost their dog a few months ago and um you know and I know she she contacted me because she said I know you'll understand are we making the right decision and 
all of this, you know, and we had a really good talk about it. And, you know, she wanted that reassurance, but she wanted to talk to someone who she knew wasn't going to judge her and go, are you serious? It's just a dog, you know, like some people unfortunately are. So she wanted, you know, she knew that I was bawling my eyes out um, with her. And, you know, when I knew it was happening, I knew the practice where, where she was taking the dog. And, um, you know, and I, I, I sent some flowers to her at work to my girlfriend, but I wanted to do something for the clinic. Again, it was a, a sister clinic to where I go. I'm sort of like, yeah, I know this is tough, but, you know, like just, just to make their day, again, just a random thing. And I sort of thought, yeah, flowers are nice, but I thought, I know they like chocolates as well, um, or ice cream in Ken's case. But it was like this little bouquet and it looked like flowers, but it was all chocolates on it, you know, like the little things of like flake and milky bar, but it was like a little posy thing, but it had all chocolate. It was awesome, you know, and, and they loved it because, again, it's just little gestures. And, again, I'm not saying everything has to cost money, but random things like that that just do that. Like I, I constantly rack my brains going to, to my vet clinic um, where I take my pets, my the clinic that I own, because I'm like, what else can I do for them to show them how much? Because I always make sure I say thank you. And after the TV episode on the SBS Insight that went on, oh, my gosh, it was a, an amazing episode and I bawled my eyes out the whole way through it. But that was um, I've, I've heard of people that have had clients ringing up their practice to say, oh, my gosh, we watched the episode. We had no idea. We're so sorry. This is what you go through. Um, you know, so it was really nice to see that. And I think those kind of things can go a long way, that validation, that acknowledgement that, you know, it's not necessarily, and, again, Cam, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not always about, oh, thank you for being an excellent vet. It's more I want to thank you because I had no idea how tough your job was um, and thank you for being an excellent job and dealing with all of this extra stuff that you have to deal with. Um, you know, so it's an acknowledgement of the broader picture because some people just don't understand, they don't realise, you know, what really goes on because, again, the perceptions are quite different to the reality. Absolutely. And I think um, all of that is certainly at the core of all that you're doing um, and it's the essence of love your pet, love your vet, because you've talked about that care that we have for our animals, the fact that we can be going to the vets, we have these services available. Let's be thankful for that. Let's drive that positivity. Um, and also, like, if you feel bold and brave enough, call it out if you're if you're a client and you see someone else, um, you know, not being as kind as they could be. Or um, I guess we, we, we need to try and arm the industry to be able to do that as well. Um, and that will take time with, with building up resilience and building up ways of getting around these kinds of issues. But um, certainly from an animal lover's point of view and pet ownership point of view, we can be doing a lot um, that can go a really long way. I just want to finish pretty much by asking you um, the state of play right now for Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet and what what's what's next and what are you excited about what can we get excited about oh gosh there's so much going on <laughs> and I know Jackie you know a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with um being on the committee and then things got so busy so we sort of had to stop a lot of the committee meetings and everything just you know as I said it's sort of one person trying to do everything um for love your pet but it's super super um I guess exciting um just some of the things we've got a new campaign that we're working on at the moment. This is something we've been working on since last year. Obviously, Jack, I mean, you would know when we're talking all about that um, with, with some of the work with the PR agency. That's sort of taken on a new life of its own after um, obviously the SBS Insight and another TV program that I don't even want to acknowledge um, that went on that was a not very nice story about something that happened in the industry. 
um, that really sort of highlighted the need to really step things up a notch, you know, because it's been over two years since we launched our official campaign with Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. So now it's sort of like, how do we top that? You know, I, I absolutely love that. I love those videos and I just, I still watch them now. And, um, you know, I really just want to take things up a notch because I think we've certainly come a long way in the last two years with within the vet profession, you know, and I've absolutely seen a change happening there. But there's still a lot of work to do, I believe, within the community and that education around that, you know, and certainly the work, Jack, that you're doing with Flynn's Walk and getting out there and raising awareness that people are going, wow, I had no idea. You know, it's it's a collective effort getting out there and doing this. Um, so we are working. We've actually got two PR agencies on the go now um, working on a new campaign um, alongside with Royal Cannon. Um, it will be some form of social media campaign. Um, you know, we're also launching, we've been working on this all year as well with Royal Cannon and some of their partners um, having an official launch into the US. You know, we do have a presence, you know, like globally, but really having an official launch in the US. So we're still working on that. Again, COVID sort of put a bit of a dampener on a lot of things where everyone was like, drop tools, we need to focus on this. Um, but getting that official launch out there and then we'll be looking at broadening that um, more broadly, hopefully next year, like UK and sort of the European areas, sort of got our fingers in the pie, but sort of getting this official. Um, there's a lot of partnerships on the go, a lot of collaborations as well, like here and internationally um, that, that we're working on. Again, the aim is to spread the word, you know, just to get more and more people educated, but also to provide more awareness within the vet community on a broader level about, you know, that we are here, we're doing, you know, what we can to try and support you. We, we want to advocate and get some changes happening. Um, you know, and I know there, there are other organisations internationally that are doing that. But to me, it's sort of like the, the more we can do, we're all working together for the same goal. Mm. So if we can all come together, present that united front, that's when we're going to have the biggest impact, you know. And I believe the more we can smother the industry, to use that term, the more it's sort of like there's nowhere to run. You have to go and, you know, talk to someone. It's okay to talk about this now, you know, because we're normalising those conversations and reducing that stigma. So thank you um, for your time and, and thanks for your efforts. And um, we'll always... Be in touch and, and of course, loveyourpetloveyourvet.com.au has all the information about what you do, some really good handy tips for the community but also for veterinarians and, of course, your Facebook page has got those videos um, which you did uh, a couple of years back now um, which which are really, really powerful. Um, so well done to you and everyone involved in that as well and, um, yeah, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me and also, um, you know, the work that you're doing as well. Jack with Flynn's Walk, you know, it's it's getting that discussion going. It's getting that message out there um, and working together to get that message out there, you know, because certainly we have people up here saying, oh, you should do a walk. It's like, oh, you need to talk to Jack. Um, you know, and I think that's how some of the, you know, the things that have happened up here happen. But I think it also helps, you know, each of us to, you know, again, come together, you know, with what we're both doing and getting that message and that support out there. So thank you guys as well for, for the work that you're doing. Well, it's always great to connect with Dr. Nadine and uh, we appreciate the work she does and the time that she commits to this. Um, she is one person. She has others around her helping her, but she really is the the engine room for the charity work that she's doing. So, um, yeah, 
a huge, huge, huge amount of gratitude for her for that. Absolutely. She gets a heck of a lot done. So she's obviously a great support uh, service. Um, love your pet, love your vet au, as we mentioned. She's got some great resources on there. Uh, of course, if you are in the veterinary field or any field, uh, there's always help available. Uh, Beyond Blue, 1300 224636. There's the Kids Helpline as well, uh, Headspace for under 25. So in those formative years uh, while you're studying, they're a really great place to reach out to if you if you need some support. Um, are you okay, who we work closely with? Um, but if you're looking for that uh, tailored support for the veterinary field, um, then Nadine's a really good place to to begin that journey. Um, and she, of course, can offer support one-on-one or um, at a practice level in terms of getting a staff body together to, to talk about how things are going. Um, and she also offers a debrief service um, during hard times as well. Uh, and that doesn't just need to be if you've lost someone that uh, you were close to. So. All those services are out there. Um, they're accessible. Um, they've all got websites and you don't even actually have to speak to anyone to get some support. Cam, thank you, mate, uh, for your time today on today's chat. And uh, I'm looking forward to when um, we can sub you in again. Although, you know, I probably should stop calling you a sub. You're far more than that. You're definitely, you're definitely part of this, mate. So thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be back. Great to be back.